Good morning, everyone. Everybody enjoying the cooler weather? I am. Except I found out my heater was broken. That's, that's how you find out. It, it gets cold and you've got to turn the heater on. So. <laughs> um, glad to see everyone this morning. Uh, it's a good day to be here. And uh, the title of the sermon today is Why Humility? It's a question. Why Humility? And uh, as we get started, I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to uh, the book of Philippians, chapter 2. We will be starting in verse 1. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Join me as we read God's Word this morning. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men." And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Amen. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for this beautiful sunny day that you've created. We thank you for this opportunity to come together, gather around your word, and gather around the song and praises to your name. And Lord, we just pray as we continue to read your word this morning that you would cause it to have the effect in our hearts that you desire to have. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be prepared to hear from you, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted. Thank you for the power of your word. And Lord, we are so grateful that you have protected it and kept it for us all these years, and it's always relevant. Help us, Lord, to apply it to our lives and to live by it. May our study and our reading of your word this morning bring honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the last uh, three times that I have preached up here, uh, I've been in the first chapter of the book of Philippians, and today we'll be starting in chapter 2 and going through um, the first 11 verses. Uh, I was going to go through the first 13, but I think I bit off more than I could chew, and uh, just didn't get that far. Otherwise, we'd have to be here a while longer. But uh, 
So as a reminder, to bring us up to speed, let's look uh, real quick at what Paul had focused on in the first part of his letter to the Philippian believers and the things that he wanted them to know and understand um, as he was not with them. He's in prison when he's writing this letter. Paul wanted them to know that he is thankful to God for them in all of his prayers. He wanted them to know of his great love and affection for them. And that the advancing of the gospel of Jesus Christ had continued uh, even though he was in prison. And in fact, because he was in prison. And that he rejoices in his suffering and will continue to do so. That he is not ashamed at his body and life being dishonored by men for the honoring of Christ. He wanted them to know that he had determined that whether he lived or died, it didn't matter. Because he knew that to live is Christ and to die is gain. He wanted them to know that he truly believed God was going to allow him to come and visit them again. That they still had more to learn and more for him to teach them about the gospel. That their lives should be lived in such a way that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they should not be frightened in anything from those who oppose them because they oppose Christ. That being a Christian is not only about belief in Jesus, but that the life of a Christian is a struggle, a conflict, and, has, and God has determined that to truly be a Christian is to suffer for the sake of Christ. And we have to remember that uh, chapter numbers and verses have been added to the Scripture uh, to make it easier for us to locate particular passages um, and in the transition from chapter 1 to chapter 2, um, it really should be read straight on through because the subject is connected. Paul's statements in chapter 2 are the continuation of and directly related to the context of chapter 1. So what in particular is the connection between the two here? It is that believers are engaged in a conflict it is a conflict specific to Christians by the will of God because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, their suffering in this conflict is by the will of God. In verse 29 of chapter 1, uh, as Paul finished up uh, that portion of what he was saying, he said, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Not for his sake, meaning we are suffering to somehow save Jesus from something, but for his sake because it glorifies the name of Jesus, and when his people suffer unjustly in his name, the gospel is spread. Now, I don't know if that information from Paul was a shock to the Philippians. They saw what happened to Paul when he was with them. They know he's currently in prison. And in fact, they are in the middle of the conflict, as Paul indicated in verse 30 of chapter 1, where he said, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So I don't believe that this was a shocking revelation to them that a life of a Christian would have suffering. The Bible's full of descriptions, examples, and instructions about God's plan for the, His people to suffer for the sake of Christ. This message 
would be quite shocking to many congregations in America, I believe, but a pastor would literally have to skip over or twist the meaning of most of the Bible to avoid the subject. People might say, wait, pastor, I thought if I became a Christian, everything was going to go well for me. I wouldn't get sick. I would be successful. I would be rich and have the best cars and the best family and, well, my best life now. Well, that message is one of the biggest lies about Christianity in the church today. When people are confronted by the reality of the difficulties of the Christian life and they have believed this lie, they will ultimately have to conclude that God is a liar because they have been taught it is God's will for them to prosper in a worldly and in a here and now sense. And this makes a shipwreck of people's faith. If you're a Christian, this is not your best life now. Your best life is being free of this world of suffering and sin and being in eternity with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is your best life. In our text today in chapter 2, look again real quick at verses 1 and 2. Paul says to them, remember this is connected to chapter 1 where he finished up talking about um, that it is God's will that we would suffer for the sake of Christ. He goes into 2 and says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul here is looking for and talking to any true believer and indicating that encouragement, or uh, as some of your translations might say, or consolation in Christ is not tied to their circumstances, but to their eternal salvation. A person who understands and believes the gospel of Jesus Christ has encouragement in eternal salvation in spite of earthly sufferings. It is impossible to be a Christian and have no encouragement in Christ. If so, then have you forgotten what He did for you? It is the same question for the other benefits of true Christianity that Paul lists, comfort from love, participation in or fellowship with the Spirit, and affection and sympathy. He is, in a sense, asking them to evaluate their profession of faith in light of the cost of Christianity that he's just laid out. Since Paul benefits from these gifts by being in Christ, he has them in common with the believers in Philippi. Now he wants them to know that they can complete his joy, his exceeding gladness in Christ. He mentioned his joy in chapter 1 when he said he rejoiced over them in his prayers because of their partnership in the gospel in verse 4. And again in verse 18 when he rejoiced over the proclamation of Christ and the gospel in every way. So what, Paul, what does Paul say would complete his joy? He lists four things that all center around unity in the body of Christ. The first one is by being of the same mind. The second is by having the same love. The third is by being in full accord. And the fourth is by being of one mind. Of the same mind means to think the same way. 
This word is used all over the New Testament to indicate how Christians are to think the same way about what God says to them. If Scripture says something is true, we are to think that same way about it. Having the same love means the love of Christ. It means regardless of a brother or sister in Christ's social or economic status or our personality differences with them, we remember what Jesus did for us and should instantly be reminded that we have no right to be unloving toward anyone. 1 John 3, 16-18 is where I'll go next if you want to turn there. 1 John 3, 16-18. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The next one was being in full accord. And this is translated from a Greek word, I think a a two-part Greek word, with the meaning of one-souled. Some commentators have described it as meaning knit together, that the body of Christ is to be knit together. And it seems that this is the only place in the New Testament where this particular word is used. Being of one mind is pretty much the same thing as being of the same mind, In this list, the list begins and ends with a call for unity among believers. This unity is not possible with any group or person claiming Christianity, but preaching a different gospel or a different Christ. This is only possible with those holding to the sound doctrines revealed in the Word of God. Romans 15, 5 and 6 sums up the source and purpose in these things. It says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says to know that the Philippian people are living in such a way would complete his joy. This is the joy of a pastor to those that he's taught and cared for and that he loves and he's concerned for. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is what Paul is really asking for from the Philippians. He wants to hear and know of them that they are united in Christ. Back in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul goes on to say, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
This is Paul's instruction for how to accomplish living in the way that he has just finished laying out. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Ambition is not always a bad thing. It can actually be a very good trait in a person whose ambition is focused on a godly direction and with godly motives. But when you add the word selfish in front of it, it changes everything. Selfish ambition is just what it sounds like. This person is totally focused on self. Their purpose is self. Their motivation is self. And their desired outcome is all about self. This is the kind of ambition that walks all over every other person without a second thought. And if there is a second thought, it's quickly justified by more self-focus. There is no thought to the consequences or the cost. If you turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark, we'll look at an example. The book of Mark, chapter 10. Mark 10, 35 through 45. Now, this is a point where two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, are wanting to be at one each on one, one on the right and one on the left hand of him in his kingdom. And there's another accounting of this in Matthew, which describes the fact that uh, they brought their mother with them to make this argument uh, to Jesus. Uh, the, the accounting here in Mark doesn't, doesn't discuss their mother, but uh, we'll look and see what Jesus has to say about this. It's almost comical in a way. Uh, however, it is, it is sad. Verse 35, chapter 10 of Mark. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." Jesus indicates to James and John that basically the same thing that Paul had indicated to the Philippians about what it means to follow Christ. But Jesus says to them, you want to be first in my kingdom? You have no idea what you're asking. He goes on to talk about this cup and this baptism. He's talking about the suffering he's going to have to go through. They're thinking honor, position, title, and riches They're looking out for number one. 
Jesus knows those who truly follow him here on earth are on a path of pain and suffering and hardship, trials, and sometimes martyrdom because of him. Jesus had also just finished telling the disciples again that he was going to be delivered up and killed and then be raised from the dead. It seems they didn't hear any of that. Self-focus causes us to miss what's really going on around us and what's really important. In this case, that's other people in our lives. Jesus' example is servanthood. He ended that passage we read by saying, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. We talked about selfish ambition, but conceit adds an even more disgusting element to that particular person. Conceit is completely excessive in every way. This person is highly overconfident in their own abilities and talents. They are puffed up with excessive pride in their looks, knowledge, perhaps their quick-wittedness, and has no problem making sure that you know it. In fact, this person cannot understand why you can't see it. Paul says that this should never be the kind of people that we are, and nothing we do should ever be done in this way. The remedy to this, the way to keep from falling into this, and what this kind of self-focus must be replaced with is humility. Not only that, but in humility we must consider other people as more significant than ourselves. Psalm 1827 says, For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. Psalm 25, 9, he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Isaiah 66, 2 says, all these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. On the surface, these Verses seem pretty straightforward and easy to understand. Perhaps you are even doing a little self-assessment right now, whether or not you're a humble person. It's likely that if you're doing that, during that assessment, you've already thought of another person you know who fits the descriptions of selfish ambition and conceit. And you're comparing yourself to them, and it's obvious you're much humbler than they are. It's easy sort of look at the most outrageous examples of these and remove ourselves from having a problem in this area. Are any of us really good at being humble? There's a subtle and sinister nature to this selfishness and conceit that causes problems in and even destroys our relationships at work, at home, at church. It will eat away at relationships little by little. Think about it. Every friendship ended, every parent-child relationship broken, and every marriage that has ever ended in divorce can be traced back to selfishness and conceit. 
Just try to think of one broken relationship you know of that didn't end because of these sinful attitudes in one or both of the people involved in one form or another. One or both had to be right. Always, one always knew best. Always had to have his or her way. Many of us struggle to forgive even the smallest of infractions against us, and we definitely keep a running total of offenses. We often cannot see our own selfishness, even when people around us point it out. The opposite of humility is pride, and pride brings destruction. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. So a passage that should sound very familiar to us. Maybe not because we've read it before. I hope because we've read it before, but more so because it's very descriptive. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 1 through 5. But understand this, that in the last days there will, be, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Does that sound familiar? Does it look like something that we can see easily in other people? Perhaps some of that in ourselves. As well. Psalm 10:4 says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, There is no God. We live in a culture concerned with my rights, my stuff, my will, my way. We have shelves of magazines and books dedicated to self. We're all about self image. Self-esteem, self-improvement, self-motivation, self-meaning, and selfies. (laughs) This is to be expected in the world, but should not be accepted in the church. I'm not talking about in this building. I'm talking about among the church, among believers. The Scripture tells us to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. That does not mean we totally ignore our own needs. This is not about complete self-denial into poverty. We don't tend to forget about our own needs, but lots of times we very easily forget or flat-out ignore the needs of others. Ephesians 5.21 tells us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ We don't do it because it's comfortable or because we particularly like doing it, but because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to fight against the lie that I am the most important person on the face of the planet. 
We do that by confessing and repenting of our pride and humbling ourselves and considering others more significant than ourselves. Think of all the ways every day where you make sure your own interests are covered. Now think, how can I ensure that my wife's interests are covered, that my kids' interests are covered, that my brothers and sisters in Christ's interests are covered, and that they are met over my needs. We should pray and ask God to help us with this. We all struggle with this, and we all need help with this. If we only had a godly example to follow and to show us what this really looks like, well, we have many, but Paul gives us the ultimate example in humility in the life of Jesus. As we look forward in our text here in verses 5 through 8, in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He means think this way. In Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He says, have this mind among yourselves. Think this way about what I've just told you. This way of thinking is yours and is made possible through your faith in Jesus Christ and participation in or fellowship with the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 6, Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Paul didn't use the word was there to mean Jesus used to be God, but now he's not. He's reminding the Philippians that Jesus is God and has always been God. Paul wants to show them the enormity of the level of humility shown by Jesus. He is the second member of the Trinity the creator of the universe, yet while he was here on earth, did not grab onto that. In other words, he did not, in order to put a stop to the mocking and beating and false charges against him, ever throw down his cross and say, I've had it with you people, and then destroy them in a fit of rage. Even when they challenged Jesus to show his power by taking himself down off the cross, he did not do so, though he could have. No, he had sin to die for. Instead, Paul says in verse 7 that Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. This also does not mean that Jesus ceased to be God so that he could become a man. Jesus was always fully God, always fully man. Though Jesus had all the rights of deity, he emptied himself of those, set them aside, made them of no effect while he was here on earth. Look at verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How can we even put into words what it meant for Jesus to leave his glorious, eternal place with the Father and the Spirit, to be found in human form. 
the form of his own creation that hates and rejects him. And then willingly laying down his life for that creation at the hands of that creation and in the most humbling and humiliating death ever known by that creation. All without uttering a word. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Anything and everything we could ever offer in the form of humility and emptying ourselves of our rightful due could never compare to this example of humility from Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't just do this for us, but as an example to us of what it means to follow Him. In verses 9 through 11, it says, Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is no other name higher than the name of Jesus, no other name worthy of our praise and our worship and our honor, no other name that will one day cause every knee to bow and every tongue to confess exactly who He is to the glory of God the Father. He is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, why humility? Humility is the antidote to the sin of pride. We are called to it. Christ exemplified it. It brings glory to our Heavenly Father. It brings about unity in His church. And Jesus wants us to learn from Him. Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Sounds a bit depressing. The fact that we all need so much help in this area of humility, getting rid of our pride, it's a hard lesson to hear about the life of a Christian. Jesus said many very difficult things to his disciples, especially just before he left them, just before his crucifixion. But Jesus said something to them that was meant to be an encouragement to them, even in hearing difficult things. In John 16, verse 33, after Jesus had said a bunch of very difficult things for them to hear, including about how they were all going to scatter and leave him alone, Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So though it's hard to hear, it's not something that as believers we look at as a defeat. We have the peace of Christ with us. He's given us the Holy Spirit as our helper. We can continue in prayer and in study of God's Word and doing what the Word says and humbling ourselves, thinking of other people before ourselves. 
So yes, this is not our best life now. Our best life is to come as believers. If you're an unbeliever, this is your best life now. Because without Christ, you die and you're eternally separated from God in hell. So this is your best life now. Humble yourself before Almighty God, trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Because of your sin, you need that Savior. So, moving forward this week, we're going to work on being humble, looking at other people's needs ahead of our own, counting them as more significant than ourselves because of Christ's example of humility above everything else. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come to you humbled by your word. As we think about our struggle with pride, some more than others, and Lord, I just pray that your word will penetrate our hearts this morning, that we would confess and repent of our pride, Lord, that we would do what your word says in being humble, considering others before ourselves. Lord, give us the strength to do so. Lord, help us to be unified as your church in this thinking. Thank you, God, for the Holy Spirit who empowers us to do the things that you've called us to do. God, I pray for the one who's an unbeliever this morning, that you would convict them of their sin and their need for a Savior. Thank you for the peace you've left us as your children. God, we look forward to our eternal salvation. Thanks to Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I'm going to sing a final song. Um, I'll stand down here if you would like prayer for anything. Uh, if you would like to have more information about what it means to trust Christ as your Savior, I would be happy to set up a time to talk with you more about that. Let's sing. <laughs>